Hi, this is Peter Merholtz, and this is the Progression Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Progression Podcast. This week, I talk to Peter Merholtz, the co-author of Org Design for Design Orgs with Kristen Skinner uh, and founder of Adaptive Path back in the day. He's very vocal on how progression works and, and how to grow your design team. So it was a really fascinating chat. We talked about his career to date and how he came to be where he is now. We talked about managing up, across and down and, and what it means to be a manager nowadays. We talked about the challenge of managing people full stop. Um, we talked about uh, progression frameworks and, and uh, how companies should think about their progression framework as they grow. Uh, we talked about writing <laughs> and how hard that is. Uh, and we got into ethics uh, and the future of design um, towards the end, uh, which is some of the most interesting stuff. So do stick around for this fairly long uh, episode. Um, we we actually even got to some listener questions. So this is a good one. This episode is brought to you by Onfido. Uh, Onfido are a London-based startup that help companies onboard customers quickly and securely using AI to compare ID documents to facial biometrics. So if you've ever taken a short video of yourself when signing up to a financial service or online marketplace, I'm sure you have. Uh, it may be that you've used their product already. Um, Onfido are always on the lookout for talented designers to join their team. Of course, they're hiring uh, and uh, they're currently looking for a VP of design. That job position is now on their site. Uh, you should go and check it out. Um, their VP of design will help manage and scale the brand and product design teams uh, as the business continues to grow and it is growing fast. So check out onfido.com slash jobs. That's O-N-F-I-D-O dot com slash jobs for more information on that. Uh, I can thoroughly recommend hanging out with that team there, they're ace. Uh, and in fact, uh, an ex-guest on this podcast, Kevin Goldsmith, is now their CTO. So um, if you liked his episode, then you could literally get paid to hang out with him every day. Um, okay. Oh, I should also probably mention, because I'm terrible at doing this, uh, that progressionapp.com, uh, the, the wait list is growing and uh, the alpha is going well. So, so it's looking good for uh, more people to, to come on and, and use the product soon. Uh, so if you're interested in growing your design progression framework or, or actually progression framework for uh, engineering or any other kind of tech discipline, then do make sure you're on that list so you can find out as soon as possible when there's an option for you to get involved. Okay, so I've run out of things to say. I'm off to Berlin. Uh, have a great week and enjoy the show. Peter, I, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast because probably of all of the people that I can think of um, who are appropriate guests to have on a podcast, which is about progression in careers and progression in design, uh, you're probably uh, right up there in the top three. Um, so uh, it's uh, it's really fantastic to kind of, I'm kind of hoping that we can talk a few times over the next uh, few years as we both go on our journeys and continue on our journeys. But um, I've got a whole bunch of stuff to ask you about. First of all, it would be great for those people that don't happen to have picked up 
uh, org design for design orgs or come across your work at Adaptive Path or all of these kind of things. Um, if you could give a bit of a potted history, how do you find yourself here today now? Yeah, um, so it kind of starts uh, uh, a while ago with uh, receiving an anthropology degree at UC Berkeley, which I didn't realize was going to set me on a path of uh, user-centered design. Um, but uh, uh, early on, I, I clearly had an interest in people and their behavior. Um, uh, then took this kind of dog leg around as, as a bit of a web developer uh, because I taught myself HTML and I was always interested in, I was interested in computers, but not necessarily interested in programming. And then at some point shifted from being a web developer to an interaction designer and from an interaction designer to a user-centered interaction designer. Um, and then um, 2001 started a company called Adaptive Path, which was uh, one of the first uh, consulting firms dedicated to user experience and not just like usability engineering. Um, helped uh, run and grow that for 10 years. And then since leaving Adaptive Path, uh, have been a design executive at a few companies, um, probably most notably Groupon, um, where I was running design for a year and a half, grew a team from 25 to 60. And it was that experience where I, I, learned, I learned a lot what it meant to be an in-house design leader. Um, and it was, it was there that I tried to figure out how do you bring how do you bring what makes design work in a design firm, such as Adaptive Path, a company whose sole purpose is to deliver quality design? How do you bring the, the, the qualities that allow that to happen into an organization that's not all about design? Groupon, we, had, we were a design team, but it was about a bunch of other stuff. How do you bring those qualities in without just trying to, without, without relying on some type of internal agency model, which we know doesn't work? So, so that made me think about what are the core principles of organizations that enable good design and how do you, by going to those principles, figure out ways to express those principles within a company. And it was really kind of the adaptive path and then Groupon experience um, that led to uh, a couple years after I left Groupon to co-writing a book, Org Design for Design Orgs. Uh, with uh, someone I had worked with at Adaptive Path, Kristen Skinner, and her experience had been a lot of big enterprises. She worked at Microsoft, then she worked with us at, with me at Adaptive Path, but then she stuck around for the Capital One acquisition. So she had this exposure to, to um, design teams, and design management within these large enterprises. Um, and I had more of an experience with design management, either on this agency side or smaller companies, quasi startup kinds of environments. Um, and so that kind of, you know, leads me to where I am today in terms of having written the book. Um, and uh, for the past year, I've uh, been independent uh, working on contracts and consulting opportunities, usually around matters of, of scaling design organizations. Right, right. Uh, so if, if possible, what is the book org design for design orgs about what does it cover and uh, what did you and Kristen kind of try and accomplish with that yeah so um the subtitle of the book is uh building effective in-house design teams and that's really what it's about uh it's about all the behind the scenes 
organizational matters when it comes to uh, creating an environment, a context that allows design to succeed. Too often when we talk about design, we focus on methods and practice and case studies, and those are important, but they're insufficient. And what we don't pay attention to is that in order to enable great design to happen, someone needs to create a a space, whether physical or kind of conceptual, a space for designers to do their best work. And there wasn't anything about that uh, out there. So so based on, on our shared experience, we wrote this book to, to pull the curtain uh, and allow people to understand um, what are those qualities of an effective organization? How do you, how do you organize? How do you organize literally the people within a team, the people uh, within design? Um, how do you organize them with respect to their cross-functional partners, say product managers, engineers, marketers? Um, how do you recruit and hire designers? How do you provide professional development for designers? Obviously, that's of, of big interest here. Um, uh, career ladders and, and the sort. Um, how do you create a design culture uh, within the team? I, I, I was le- we were less interested in in trying to turn companies into being design led, and more interested in just how do you create a design team that feels like it's um, coherent and and part of something bigger than itself? What are those cultural aspects? What are the values of of those design organizations? So so that's mm. what the book is about is is the building and shaping and the qualities of the organization that enable good design to happen. I, I'm, I'm interested, uh, well, I'm interested in how you write a book. I've been writing more than I would usually do uh, over the last year and found it quite hard work. Uh, so transitioning from, you know, being a, a designer and then a, a design leader into sitting and writing for a very long time. Um, but then also, I suppose I'm interested in in the start of that process of deciding that a book was the next best thing to do was that you're published by O'Reilly. And uh, was that something that they saw an opportunity for this book to be written? Was this something that you came to them and said, look, there's this groundswell of, you know, the boardroom is talking about design thinking and, you know, (laughs) all this stuff. Yeah. So um, I have always written, even as a design lead, um, uh, starting, I I launched the petermi.com blog in 1998 and the first things I wrote about were interface and interaction design. And then when we started Adaptive Path a few years later, uh, we we had essays and a blog from the beginning. And so writing about my work has always been part of my process. Uh, I think it allows me to understand what I'm doing better by forcing myself to kind of pull out, articulate it, um, and then kind of re-engage. Um so, so writing a book, um, I mean, it's not easy, but it wasn't a huge step for me. Uh, also at Adaptive Path, we, we had written a book at Adaptive Path. Four of us had written a book called Subject to Change. Right. And I had written a couple of chapters, and that was actually also with O'Reilly. So I was, I was familiar with book writing, um, and I had been um, laid off um, by Jawbone um, as part of a cost cutting measure. They, they got rid of a bunch of us. So I had some time, I had some severance and that was when I was able to really kind of get started on, on focused on writing the book. I just kind of gave myself those couple of months after getting laid off to, to get some momentum. It took longer than that, but I was able to build momentum. 
and, and, and writing with Kristen. She had a job the whole time, so it was a little bit harder for her to carve time out um, for, for her parts of the book. Um, in terms of the, the genesis of the book, um, so as someone who's been speaking and writing about design as long as I've been practicing it, what I speak and write about are the things that I'm doing. And so as I was a design executive at Groupon, um, 2012, 2013, 2014, when I would talk at conferences, I would, I would reflect on my experience, which was now what it means to be a VP of design. And what are the challenges I'm facing? What are the things I'm, I'm dealing with? And I, I did so because I felt it would be interesting to the audiences I was talking to, most of whom were not executives, <laughs> most of whom were designers, so that they could understand kind of what their bosses are dealing with, right? Um, uh, kind of, again, pull back the curtain and, and expose some of that stuff. And what hap- what was happening over 2013 and 2014 is, is I was um, giving a, a, a talk at conferences on organizing design teams. Um, I would, uh, with every subsequent presentation, I would get more and more vociferous feedback about how I was the only one talking about these things. Where else can I find information, you know, from these people? Where where can I get more information about the kind of thing you're talking about? Where do I turn? Because what had happened was there was this now this um, uh, uh, cohort of design leaders who had emerged in all these companies as design was growing. And there was nowhere for them to turn. They, the, no one in their organization understood their job. Their team didn't understand their job. Their peers didn't understand their job. Their boss didn't understand their job because they were the only one doing that one thing. And so um, as, as that kind of um, the drum of feedback grew louder with every subsequent presentation, it became clear to me like, OK, there's there's something here. There's there's definitely a market for it. And it was also the first subject that I had been engaging with, where I was like, oh, this is book length. I've I've had other talks and other things I've done that, you know, could be an essay or a blog post or this, that, the other thing. But this one, I'm like, no, there's a there's a book's worth of material here. And separately, Kristen had had the same experience, and she had been talking about matters of design program management, what we now call design ops. Now, that phrase <laughs> didn't exist two and a half years ago. Um, um, when she would talk about program management, um, at conferences, people were were similarly giving her that kind of feedback. So we just realized there was this interest. So we we approached O'Reilly. Um, I had known some folks there, um, and and they had an they have an active design. Um, uh, Design is an active topic of theirs. They they publish a lot of books addressing different aspects of design. So we reached out to them to see if they were interested in something that was a little more business oriented, right? Not necessarily as much mass appeal. Um, uh, and they said, yes, like they, they, they didn't even hesitate. So it was, it was a pretty straightforward conversation with them. Yeah. I, to go back to, uh, starting a blog and talking about interaction design publicly. And then you, you mentioned speaking at conferences, I've seen you a, a couple of conferences and, and, um, I want to get onto that a little bit later, but putting yourself out there, having an opinion in public, uh, being comfortable with the the criticism that comes with that, and then the you know the um, maybe finding the right answer as you go along and iterating on on things as you learn, and and uh, being comfortable, kind of being open minded about feedback, while also being able to stand up and confidently say the thing that you think. It's just it it's it feels to me like a not not always a skill that comes easily to people who are. Uh, probably come from a design background or creative background 
So was that something that came easily to you? And, and um, how would you how would you think about, uh, you know, it, for, for those people that would love to be able to get up uh, or write, write, sit and write a blog post or, or get up on stage, is there anything that you would say by way of advice? For, <laughs> for... Yeah, um, honestly, it did come easily to me. It, it didn't occur to me that it was anything particularly <laughs> uh, different or interesting. Um, uh, the blog actually started as an internal email newsletter, a design firm I was working at, uh, Studio Archetype back in the day when I was still a web developer and, or transitioning from a web developer into an interaction designer. Um, I would send roughly every week a set of links uh, internally to the kind of all, you know, the in-house mailing list of stuff that I found about web design, web web, yeah, largely web design matters um, that I felt would be uh, relevant. And when I left uh, that company, I I decided, you know, I was going to take what I had been doing internally and just start putting it on a public facing website. And I had given one talk by then. Um, The first talk I ever gave was on DHTML when Netscape 4 came out. And I had been active. I had been active on a on a web design, web development mailing list in San Francisco, talking about my experiences doing some early DHTML work. I was fortunate that the company I worked for had Netscape as a client, so we kind of had access to this technology before almost anybody else. And someone on that list was like, "Would you like to talk about that at this conference?" And it's still actually my first presentation was po- possibly one of the l- largest audiences I've ever spoken to. I mean, there were well over a thousand people <laughs> in the room and that almost never happens to me. Um, and so um, something I know about myself and it feels arrogant to say it, but something I know about myself is that I seem to have a gift for uh, articulating I don't even want to say a complex set of material, but sometimes that which can feel abstract or or difficult to get your ha- hands around, articulating it in such a way that it's approachable, that people can engage with it. I mean, I think that's kind of the magic of org design for design orgs is a lot of that stuff feels ephemeral and and um, untethered. You know, just it's, it's just it's it's one of those things that a lot of people don't realize. Uh, that that if you just sit down and you kind of knock it out, you write about bit by bit by bit, you can help them understand this thing that to them, it's almost like the air they breathe. They don't realize that an organization is a constructed concept. Um, they just think that like organizations appear out of Zeus's head uh, complete <laughs> and, and you just deal with them. And so, so over my career, whether it was helping people understand DHTML, talking about user experience methods, um, talking about design leadership, talking about org design. I've just naturally uh, gravitated towards trying to articulate these types of processes and concepts in a way that that make it more engaging for folks. And I've usually gotten positive feedback about that. Um, I also am not one, for better or worse, I'm not one who shies away from making controversial statements. Um, and so, and sometimes I don't realize they're controversial when I'm making them. They're just what I think makes sense. I put it out there and then I realize, oh, I've, I've stepped in something. Um, and I don't mind the pushback. I've always, uh, appreciated criticism, um, because it makes me better. I'm, I'm, and I, I don't take it personally, um, I, I have a thick skin when it comes to my ideas and and people's critique of them. 
Um, and so that's, that's never been an issue for me. Um, and, and I forget that other people don't have a thick skin and, uh, um, where I've gotten in trouble is, is engaging others the way I like to be engaged in terms of like, let's debate, let's get at this. And people who feel that is an attack, uh, which isn't the intent. Um, and, and then I, I can inadvertently shut down what could be a good conversation because different people just approach, um, discussion differently. And that's something I've had to learn as I've grown, particularly as a design leader, um, in terms of making people more comfortable. I, I want to hear those ideas. I don't want to quash them. I want to challenge them if I think there's, they're worth challenging, but I don't want to challenge them in such a way that you just shut someone down. So learning how to converse is something that I've had to, to, to develop over time. So in terms of the, the question you asked, like, you know, if someone thinking about speaking at a conference, writing, writing something up. Like if you have a take that you're not seeing out there, for me, it was always, I have a take that I'm not seeing out there. There's, there's something in, in the industry or that I'm, that I'm a part of that is not being discussed that I feel is worth discussing. Put that out there, write a medium post. Um, when it comes to speaking at a conference, um, I think the, the trick there for almost every first time speaker I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of advice for first time speakers when it comes to um, what to do. The the one piece of advice that I give is um, always remember that, you know, your material better than your audience. And probably the most common flaw that first time speakers engage in is they start with the theory and then get into the practice like they want to develop the foundational underpinnings before they talk about um, a specific instance. And that's exactly backwards. Um, because they've gotten to the point where they understand the theory um, and they think it's important to, to begin there so that then when you start um, providing cases, it's, it's based on theory and that's exactly backwards. Start with the case, mm. something concrete that people can wrap their heads around and then deconstruct that, unpack it to, to uh, uh, reveal what you think are the salient elements for your theory uh, or, or the argument that you're making. It's really interesting. I'm uh, I'm speaking at my first couple of conferences towards the end of the year, and um, I had the pleasure of joining a conference prep call for the first ever time. Uh, you know, there's a whole group of us that are speaking at this conference, all on a call with someone from the Stanford Business School who talked through uh, how to put together a, a good talk. And you know, it, as soon as you start watching the greatest speakers of our time. And deconstructing how they how they construct their narrative arc and how they go from as you say from a story and then go into how that's relevant to you and story relevant story relevant and um, wow there's really a structure to it like <laughs> uh, people have different ways of delivering the same thing some are funny and some are serious and some are hard hitting and others are um, you know one very long joke but uh, but they all take the watcher or the, the the audience on this journey with them. It's just kind of a fascinating and like anything, really, as soon as you dig just below the surface, you realize how much more there is to learn about the whole thing. It's not just standing up and saying what, you know, you know, right, 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 right. I mean, it's, there's, there's a, that's a place to start. Um, but, but knowing how to shape, you know, I've been, Again, as someone who's been writing on a blog for over twenty years, I've just I've I've been a writer for a while, and and when you write, you learn how to shape um, an argument. It's what you're taught 
I have children in elementary school, right? They're taught how to write a persuasive paper, right? And, you know, you start with your argument, then you have a point of support. And that, like, this stuff is all pretty basic in terms of how to structure that kind of argument. It's, it's, it's then how do you make it your own? How do you inject your personality? What is your flavor of it? But the, the architecture, the fundamental architecture of it um, is usually uh, pretty, pretty similar across um, good presentations. Yeah. So, uh, Peter, I'm quite pleased with this elegant segue into uh, the next thing that I want to talk about, which is uh, the most recent time that I've seen you speak, which uh, is a talk that I'm sure you've given a few times, which is which is around managing up, across and down. And and, and actually, more broadly, there's a, quite a few people who listen to this podcast who are managing for the first time or or in the process of working out whether they should be a manager and, and what does that mean and what do, how does how does your life change once you become uh, looking after people rather than pixels? Uh, so uh, I suppose a short summary of of uh, that talk from 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 you would be really interesting, and then uh, we can maybe get into a couple of the the parts of it. Yeah, so 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 the talk is called uh, "Coach, Diplomat, Champion, Architect: The Four Archetypes of the Complete Design Leader," and it it um, started as a throwaway line in my book um, where I was talking about team leads and how they needed to do all these different things, and you know they have to they have to engage with all these different audiences. Um, and then I was actually talking with Andy Budd, who organizes the, the, um, the leading design conference. Uh, he's, he's one of the founders of clear left and he was asking me, um, to do a new talk. And he, he had this subject or the theme for the day, uh, was, was kind of, um, uh, looking within, uh, or something. I forget, I forget exactly how it went, but, but, but through our conversation, I realized this one line could kind of unfurl into this talk about design leadership. And, and the talk is a lot about what you just touched on, which is there's a lot of people, designers are trained as craftspeople, as makers. And then if they get really good at that, they, they go through, um, uh, what is, not named after me, but what is called the Peter principle, right? They, they get promoted to their level of incompetence uh, because they, the thing they do really well, well, great, we're going to now promote you. And it turns out what we're promoting you to doesn't actually um, engage with the skills that got you there. And so there's this, as you've mentioned, this, this kind of um, swath of new design leaders who have never been taught management practices don't understand what it means to be a leader. They understand what it means to be a maker. And people are looking to them to engage in these new ways. And so this talk was an attempt to help them understand what's expected of them. Uh, because too often when I, what I saw is that when designers became design leaders, whether true managers in terms of managing other people or just leaders of effort, right, kind of uh, more creative leaders, when problems arose for those new leaders, they would fall back on trying to, um, they would fall back on making as a means to solving their leadership problem. And that doesn't work. Uh, leadership problems are not solved by producing more artifacts ever. <laughs> leadership problems are usually solved through communication of some sort. 
And so the point of the talk was to just open people's eyes to all the things that are now required of you as a design leader. Uh, the coach, so the three, the three primary archetypes are the coach. So that's managing down, getting the most out of your team, creating an environment for them to do their best work. The diplomat is managing across. So that's primarily uh, thinking about engaging cross-functionally and recognizing that most people in your organization don't understand design and how it works. They think they know, and they have the, a false notion. And so as a diplomat, you have to um, educate. You have to be, um, you have to recognize uh, uh, others' um, ignorance isn't quite fair, but, but you have to recognize that they just don't know what it is you do. You have to assume that they have the same best interests that you do. I think oftentimes design leaders uh, end up in these victim stances where when, when their peers don't understand them, they, they think it's because their peers are somehow bad or, or acting in bad faith. When in, when in fact, everyone is usually acting in their best faith. They just don't know what they don't know. Anyway, so there's, there's that need to be a diplomat. And then the champion is the, the managing up, um, which is how to engage with executives, how to engage with stakeholders um, in a productive fashion, how to help them understand what it is that, that your team is dealing with, how to shield your team from a lot of that leadership insanity that can occur in many organizations. Um, uh, so, so the shit umbrella. Yep. The poop umbrella. Exactly. And so, so really kind of <laughs> as that design leader, you know, down, down across and up kind of you you have this responsibility to cover all of those bases um, and what I've seen, oh, and then the last one is called the architect. And that, that, that hits when you start scaling an organization and you start needing to put systems in place to support scale. And what I've seen is I can usually, uh, assess any design leadership, um, kind of challenge falls into one of those, or usually a couple of those buckets. If a design leader is struggling within their organization, it's usually because they are often simply ignorant of one of these aspects that's expected of them. They didn't realize that was what their job was supposed to be, and they're not doing it. And, and then that part of it is, is not being handled well, right? You get certain people who are really good at managing up. They produce amazing visionary artifacts that get executives really excited but they don't know how to manage down. And so their team is really frustrated because they're not being led appropriately or vice versa. You have someone who's a really hands-on manager, servant leadership there to support you, give you everything you need, but the team isn't being given the support internally within the organization because the leader doesn't know how to play the politics to, to work the executives in order to create, um, in order to get the head count, in order to get the um, conference rooms, in order to get whatever those resources are that lead that the executives have the um, access to, you know, shared with the team, right? So it's it's kind of unfair um, that design leaders are expected to do all of these things. I, I think because design leaders, design leadership is such a is is a relatively newer type of leadership within organizations. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting. I I um I remember watching that talk and it resonating with me and and the the I couldn't help but think that the thing that makes it so hard especially if you're new is that these things don't have equal visibility to you. So if you sit and are reactive and wait for problems to arise and come and uh 
present themselves to you so that you can solve them, you'll end up over-indexing in whichever direction is kind of the hungriest for your time. So you'll, so those other things will kind of be be quietly um, failing, um, and and you'll only find out when it's too there's, late. There's that. There's there's definitely kind of yeah. There's a squeaky wheel aspect. There's also kind of whatever you're most comfortable with, right? You're gonna you're gonna go where where you feel like. Um, you, you, you know, the, the places where you know what to do, even if those aren't the places where, um, uh, where, where, where effort is needed to actually, uh, generate the kinds of new outcomes that you, you're striving. I for. mean, that, that is the human condition, isn't it? I mean, even, even as a, as, <laughs> as anyone in any job ever, you'll bias towards the things you feel comfortable with, the things that you feel like you're best at. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think for leaders in particular, um, because a leader leaders are in a role are in a privileged role um, um, but also one where uh, they have a lot of leverage because their efforts are realized through many other people leaders have a particular responsibility in being better better professionals um, than just anybody because their actions are, are amplified and magnified simply by the nature of the And quite world. often they're acting alone. So there's no, there's no uh, yin to the, the yang, you know, the, the other person going off and doing the, the bits that they're not doing. Yeah, completely. Um, so uh, kind of sticking with the, uh, well, I suppose some of the things that you've talked about in your, in your book and, and this general kind of management and being a manager, uh, uh, onto my pet subject, which is progression frameworks. And, and in the last six months, I've talked to so many teams who uh, kind of bring out the snagger job Merholtz framework as the uh, the gold standard or the, the thing against which anything else will be judged. And um, which is, you know, interesting to see. And there are definitely, uh, we can get into that framework. I'd be really interested to to hear your thoughts on whether you would evolve that now and, and, and uh, whether kind of your thinking has changed and, and how you would use that within a team. Because I think quite literally some of my customers would like to know, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> sure. consulting, um, but, uh, but also, uh, you know, more, more broadly, uh, how would you go about structuring this kind of this map um, for, for people to follow when they're, they're, not only building a team, but then within a team trying to follow. Uh, so are you just asking kind of a little bit of background then about that snag a job framework? That yeah, framework? I mean, I, I, I think um, opening that up to the world. And maybe what I might do Yeah, exactly. Maybe what you might do differently now. Um, I'm definitely interested in that. Yeah. So, so, you know, this is one of those things. I didn't know levels frameworks were a thing for the longest time because at Adaptive Path, we didn't have them. We were a relatively small company. Most people for the longest time when we hired folks, they were already senior. Um, uh, uh, and we could kind of manage growth and professional development in a fairly ad hoc, um, high touch fashion. And it wasn't until I was a Groupon and I started scaling a design organization that I was kind of introduced to the idea of levels frameworks. Mm. And I was introduced to them in a generic sense, right? Companies will have a similar levels framework for their entire organization. And so I'm working with HR and they're like, here, you know, it's probably performance review time or something along those lines. Here's a framework that we use to understand if someone is 
I mean, I, I forget if they had levels one to 10 or H to Z or whatever it is. All these companies have different ways of doing levels and grading. And we need you to kind of map your team to this set of eight, nine, 10 levels. And I'm like, okay. And they had a very generic set of like criteria. What does it mean to be junior, mid-level, senior, manager? I realized that in order for, for this to make sense for me and my team, I needed to modify it to, to work for, for, for how designers behaved. And probably the most key insight I had, um, and I think I had it back at the Groupon days, but, but regardless kind of what, 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 what's there in those snag job levels is um, kind of twofold. Um, Levels tend to assume that people want to move linearly in in their progression. Uh, We talk about climbing the corporate ladder. And what I know about designers is designers tend not to move linearly. Um, uh, the, the, The metaphor I use is designers want to kind of grow along the corporate trellis. Their designer growth is bushy. It, it's not linear. They'll, they'll jog one direction, then they'll go up and they'll jog back. And, and those jogs might be building different kinds of skills, exposing themselves to different types of problems. It's just, it's not, they're not always necessarily looking for the, whatever that next rung of, of authority and power is, which is how these levels frameworks tend to be set up. Um, the other thing that I realized with respect to the the levels framework was um, how the levels framework interacts with um, the definition of a role, uh, particularly around the matter of skills. Um, And too often what happens is, is um, uh, if you overly, if you overly define a role, say visual designer versus an interaction designer versus a user experience researcher versus a whatever, the skills that you are then preferencing are, are small. But in my experience, this is one of those things like working in a design firm and now coming in-house and trying to figure out what, what makes sense. At Adaptive Path, um, you know, we, we looked at kind of this skill spectrum from strategy and business knowledge through research and developing insights, through concept and ideation, through kind of structural stuff, the, the interaction design information architecture, and there's subsets there in terms of information architecture being much more about content and relationships, interaction design being much more about flow, and then uh, visual design, writing. Like we had this kind of spectrum of skills. And what we saw is that any designer can kind of pick and choose from across this spectrum, right? So you could be a strategic writing information architect, or you could be a research designing prototype or whatever. It kind of, it's a grab bag, but, but a lot of role definitions kind of were, were overly, overly specified the skills that people should be developing. And so for me, the key insight was to be utterly agnostic about what the skills were. You had to grow skills. There is no way to grow as a designer without um, developing skills, but what those skills were, those were up to you. Um, and so, so, so the, for me, the kind of innovation was allowing that greater degree of flexibility, but still with enough structure that you could say, yes, you had two skills before, and now you've added a third that is growth. 
And then later on, you've added a fourth. That is growth. So there's still growth happening. It's just not as as narrowly prescribed. Um, so when it when it comes to to snag a job, kind of flash forward to to the to that levels framework, right? That was um, I, I followed some work that had already been done at snag a job, but that was pretty linear. It was like here's what it looks to be in a junior designer, mid level designer, et cetera, et cetera. And I'd had this. From the book, frankly, this this kind of model that was a little more matrixed. Uh, instead of a one dimension, it was at least two dimensions, and and so I brought that content into this matrix, and and it became the snagged job levels, and and probably the key the key thing that I developed for the snagged job levels that I, that we didn't have in the book um, was um, a more explicit recognition of dual track um, development. Um, uh, uh, whether you wanted to continue as an individual contributor or become a manager. Um, uh, that was just something that, that in the book we, we yada yada And if I were to rewrite that section in the book, I would be much more explicit about that. Um, in terms of since kind of launching those levels and, and, and how might I do it differently? I think the one thing I would do differently, my levels frameworks in the past were very, while, while I did it from the perspective of the junior most designer looking forward in their career and trying to understand kind of the, the paths they could take in front of them, in practice, they were the levels frameworks were created fairly top down. It was me working with a set of kind of director level folks talking about how this should work. And I think if I were to do it differently, I would apply more, frankly, human centered design to the approach and engage with those junior members and understand kind of the challenges that they're facing as they look forward in their career and, and see how that might change, um, whether it would change the content or change the uh, presentation of this tool. I've gotten good feedback that that spreadsheet, that kind of matrix has, um, uh, it, it, I've gotten interesting feedback about how, about how people use it, how they almost kind of plot themselves from left to right and start like filling in squares as they feel like they're moving along and recognizing like, oh, I'm I'm a certain level in certain things, but I'm only this level in other things. And 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 being able to use it to plot their course very kind of uh, explicitly. Um, but, yeah, I would I would do uh, a rev on on that both the content and the representation born of conversations with, for me, the audience of that levels framework is the most junior people on the team because it's, it's that that's how I care about it is to help them understand what their progression can be. Um, so, so to better engage those people in the next iteration of that process. So then on just a, a, a follow up to that, as you become more senior or as you Definitely, as you as you start getting into, um, you know, leadership, senior leadership, and the exec, whatever it is, uh, would you expect it to be harder to define what good looks like at that point, or would you just expect people to know more inherently that you know they're experienced enough to be able to kind of write that job description for themselves? That's a good question. It's definitely easier to framework kind of individual contributors from junior, you know, right out of college through senior, you know, that five, seven, 10 years, that's more 
Um, that's more straightforward. As you start engaging with management, as you start engaging with strategy, as you start engaging with um, a hairier mix of responsibilities, applying a, uh, the levels framework does become more challenging. Um, at the heart, though, I think of it, at the heart of it, is a matter of, think of it as scope, influence, leverage. Your level is determined by um, your impact, organizational impact, which is made ma evident, manifest by how many people you touch <laughs> directly or indirectly through your efforts, right? That's all of that kind of collapses ultimately into that point. And so for me, you know, that that's why a, a not unreasonable proxy for um, growth is you know, uh, I, for me, a manager is someone who is literally managing one anywhere from one to probably three or four people. A senior manager is someone who's managing five to nine people. A director is someone who's managing kind of 10 to 20 people and probably manages managers. Right. Right. Like and so. So that that is not the only way to determine that level, especially if they're not a manager. But then if you're an individual contributor, who's at the same level as a director, right? So I would call that a principal. Are you leading teams of 10, 20, whatever people, even if you're not managing them, are you having that kind of impact and influence on their efforts, right? So that's, that's what it all comes back to. All the other stuff are kind of contributors and indicators of impact and influence. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it's the equivalency of impact across across different uh, the same level across different kind of disciplines or, 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 or different skill sets. Yeah. Which, which the wording around it becomes kind of more nebulous over time and, and uh, almost probably more nuanced to each organization as well. You know, the, the, the basic kind of visual design skill is perhaps uh, is fairly common across all organizations, but then actually you start to get to, you know, you need this, domain specificity or you need to be able to work with a particular c-level person very well or whatever it is um right right, right. it's 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 when you swip switch flip <laughs> or now a new word that i've just made up swip when you swip from um kind of those core design skills as being how you're defined to more of those interpersonal and leadership skills as being how you're defined core core design skills are relatively straightforward to measure the interpersonal and leadership skills are mushier by nature. I'm gonna I, I'm gonna ask you one more of uh, kind of my questions, and then I'm gonna get onto questions from the community, which is really exciting. First time we've ever had this feature on the podcast, so uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, but I'll be your guinea pig. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you've talked about the rise of design ops, and there's also a huge amount of conversation uh, about uh, the role of design within a, a, a company whether it's, you know, ethics, Mike Montero's work or, or um, the ability to affect strategy and whether a, whether a designer should have a seat at the table, et cetera, et cetera, all that, all that stuff, uh, almost impossible to answer in any easy way. But I'm going to try and make you answer it. <laughs> uh, where, do you see, where do you see the role of design um, and design professionals in big kind of uh, inverted commas what do you see that the kind of the future of, of our profession, if you like? I've thought a bunch about this as I've thought a lot about design at scale. 
and kind of what, what design at scale means. And as I go from, as, as uh, I've gone from being in a design consultancy to working in-house, kind of what, what is it that I and my team are bringing? And, and where I've landed, and it, and it ties with what you were discussing in terms of Montero talking about ethics, where I've landed is that design's the primary value within organizations is humanism. We are bringing a humanistic perspective to the work that is being done. And that is often in contrast and often in conflict with a more mechanistic um, uh, orientation that it, that typically exists within businesses, whether it's they're, they're business-driven and kind of the analytical uh, metrics-driven mindset of being business-driven or um, in tech kind of engineering-driven. Engineering and business tend towards reduction, uh, uh, analysis, decomposing things into a set of elements before building them back up again. Um, and it is a, it is a, a means of, of problem framing and problem solving that has clearly proven very successful, but I think has reached its limits. And I, I, I think the reason a lot of companies are embracing design, even if they don't know this, uh, intentionally or, or consciously, but subconsciously is that they've recognized that they need to have a better understanding of people and humans that they had lost um, through their prior ways of working. And so the role that design plays is to bring that humanistic, um, generative, creative, holistic way of, of framing and solving problems into the enterprise. Um, so that's, that's, that's kind of my mission now is, is one of humanism uh, as, as a force within enterprises. Interesting. Empathy, uh, kind of scaling empathy. I don't know. Scaling empathy, <laughs> scaling soul. Um, there's this, there's this comment, there's the quote that I use in, in a talk from Steve Jobs about how design uh, is the soul of the thing that you're making, right? It kind of is, 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 is how it's embodied. And so when you talk about design at scale, you're basically saying, how do you scale soul? Within, within an organization, which is this non-trivial problem um, because scale and soul are almost contradictory, right? And this is one of the struggles I think design has as it scales within organizations is it loses its humanity as it tries to become something um, that can plug in to a big system. This was the frustration I had originally with levels. I, I never wanted to be the levels guy. Um, levels are a bureaucratic tool. Um, to to support scaling, and I felt that at heart they were fundamentally anti-humanistic and thus anti-design. Yeah. But there's a reality: if you're going to hire 150 designers, it, they just can't be a bunch of of cats kind of crawling around totally untethered. You needed something to organize them, and so for me, the the levels framework. That's why I start at that perspective of the junior person looking forward, and think of it as a scaffold. Mm. That allows them to grow that trellis as opposed to this um, imposed um, uh, uh, set grid of boxes that defines who they are. And, and, and that's the challenge that designers face. This was a conversation I was having recently with Jesse James Garrett, 
fellow co-founder of Adaptive Path. Uh, he still remains at Capital One. And we were having this conversation about one of the challenges that design faces within these larger organizations is it is it is encouraged to accommodate to the dominant culture. And if the dominant culture is a business culture and an engineering culture, design then starts shaping itself to be more mechanistic and analytical to accommodate, and thus it loses its value. The whole reason for it being there is that it's different than those ways of, of being. And if design um, morphs itself into something that just makes it feel like those other models, those other ways of working, then, then what's the value of design beyond make it pretty at that point, right? So, so this is, I mean, this is like, I, I think this is literally when you look, when you're talking about ethics, when you're talking about the future of design, um, it is the existential concern of design within organizations of how to maintain its humanity um, in the face of a lot of forces that are um, doing everything, everything they can to strip humanity from how businesses work. Wow. This is a, yeah, this is such a, a, a challenging it's so easy, so much easier to assimilate. And, and in the short term, it, you know, by, I don't know, homogenizing yourself to uh, the the landscape around you, you get more done. Like you have more impact in the short term by doing that. Uh, and it's hard. Oh, yeah. You know, you're seen as a team player. You're, you're, you're helping out. And you feel like this is the argument that a lot of design leaders will make is I need to say yes. I need to accommodate in order to to play politics and 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 then be able to you know have the impact I want and it may or may not be a successful strategy. Um, uh, 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 you know, I'm I, I haven't stuck around any one company long enough to necessarily see that kind of thing through. the The risk is that design becomes the thing that it um, that it mocked, that it feared, um, and um, you, this is where design leadership is so important. If that is the strategy, that can that could work. But your design leaders need to remember the, as as one might used to say, keep those keep eyes on the prize. What is it that we're trying to get to, and do these means justify those ends? Do they allow us to get to those ends, or do they so corrupt us along the way that it kind of we're, we've we've lost the plot now? We're 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 no different than than anyone else and 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 we're not adding any distinct value yeah it's interesting you know thinking about jobs he's probably a bit of a controversial champion in that you know as a as an interpersonal uh <laughs> you know his his reputation is is questionable as as you know as an empath oh, yeah, he was a raging asshole uh, exactly uh but but actually designers probably need more champions like that more people to point at and say uh this is someone who who led a company with that attitude and and had great success, but you kind of need more a more diverse set of examples to look at because there were so many other factors in the Apple story. Um, yes. Uh, okay. Good. Uh, I feel like we could talk about that for much longer, but um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one of those ones where you can just wind me up and I'll go for days. So yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, maybe maybe there'll be a you know episode two at some point. And, and we can get back into that. Um, but let's end with a, a couple of questions from other people. So I, I asked a couple of Slack channels uh, wh- whether they had questions for you. Um, I have a few here, so I'm just going to pick some. Uh, 
Jesus and Lisa uh, asked questions which were kind of um, uh, Lisa's question was a response to Jesus's. So I, I, three years after um, Org Design for Design Orgs was published, what's the topic from it that is still the most underrated? And equally, what have you discovered that you got wrong? Uh, I suspect while a lot of people think they're practicing the centralized partnership, they're not. <laughs> um, because key to the centralized partnership is working as a team, not as a set of individual designers, as a team of people responsible for a, um, a, a, a superset of, of, of experience more than, than individual teams can, can work on. And working as a team that in, in a way that that is mindful of that larger journey. Mm. I think what I've seen over and over again are organizations that claim to be operating in more of the centralized partnership fashion, but are still largely organized by lines of business. Right. And that kind of if 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 you have a customer that is crossing lines of business, you can't say by working as a line of managing that journey across those lines of business. And so I think that's something that that is worth re-emphasizing if I were to write again and really unpacking because it's clearly super hard to fight those lines of business structures. And so what does that mean uh, uh, in terms of trying to deliver a true end-to-end service experience that crosses those lines of business? They say that uh, people uh, design to their org chart uh, and, and build build to their org chart. And I do wonder if there's an issue this is this is a topic that i've kind of brought up with a few people uh, on the podcast in fact but if you end up reporting to whoever is the ranking person in your line of business uh, as both a uh, um, as your manager pastorally but also as the person who looks after the quality of your work and the you know your output um, it's inevitable that it's going to be especially hard for you to have any real impact outside that line of business, if that makes sense. So if it, whereas if you're reporting to someone who is not necessarily connected to your work, um, then you can move freely within the organization at large and go off and work on something that, that is important to your customer, but not necessarily uh, doesn't point to the OKR that your team cares about. Or and I, I suppose it's, it's a, it, it's a theory um, but it, it seems, it seems like the prevailing, uh, assumption is that you should, you should report to the person who is the most senior designer or whoever, um, within your line of business or within your, you know, within your, uh, team or, or unit or group. Um, and while there may be some overhead, some communication overhead to not doing that, the, the benefits kind of outweigh the, the risks in terms of, um, you can move to new teams and try new things, but also the, the quality of the product might get better. Well, one of the things that I noticed back when I was at Groupon was that, you know, my design org was relatively small, even when we got to 60, right? There were probably double as many product managers and eight times as many, 15 times as many engineers. And... um that smallness gives you an opportunity to play with organizational matters way more easily than those other teams have. And so one of the things that I played with there and also later at Snag a Job was, can I design my team differently? Can I organize my team explicit, expressly differently than how the rest of the organization is structured 
to try to manage, to try to deliver on some end to end experience, regardless of how everyone else was organized. Um, and I, and I think that's one of those things that's, that's kind of missing that maybe either we didn't stress well enough or is just hard for people to get their heads around when thinking about designing or organization design is, is again, there's so many things that we tend to assume as given about organizations and how they're shaped all of which have been created at some point, but, but we receive them as if that's just nature. And so um, uh, being way more intentional about how design teams are organized and, and, the, and what it is they work on, r- literally regardless of how the rest of the organization is structured, um, would, be, would be the one thing that hasn't quite been appreciated. The thing that... Um, uh, shortcomings, uh, probably twofold off the top of my head. One, um, articulating a successful model for better connecting marketing or communication design with product and UX design. We, we talk about it in the book and we say that, yes, you should have people working in these desi- designers to work in teams. And on those teams, there should be a communication designers working with product designers on some part of the experience. And then it never happens in the real world. It's never happened for me that way. Like, it's just, I, there is an ideal there that at some point I, we might get to, but, but practically we're not there yet. And so being more um, pragmatic about how to, how to have marketing or communication design and product design still within the same design orgs, I still think they ought to report to the same leadership. But recognizing that the the efforts are pretty distinct and much of the time they won't be collaborating, but there are key times that they will. And just kind of engaging with that conversation better is is one obvious shortcoming. Um, Another one um, that we just weren't out in front of, but in the two and a half years, three years since the book has been written, we're seeing more and more of is we we have this um, evolution of design orgs across five stages basically from what we call the initial pair in stage one. And then the fifth stage is around 60 or 70 folks. You have a VP of design. They have a couple of directors, right? You have a pretty legitimate design org. And we yada, yada staged, you know, as design orgs grow, it's like this only more so done. And what Kristen and I have seen, whether it's looking at kind of how Capital One has grown or now she's been at Chase, uh, bank for a while, and I've um, I, I've consulted for different companies, and just seen like there are actually at least two more stages. There's what we call stage six and stage seven. Um, might even be a stage eight if I think about it, or or you kind of get off the track. But but there are interesting things that happen beyond basically the next kind of um, uh, transition point is when a design org gets to be about 125 to 150. And then another one happens when the designer gets to be about 250, 300. There's probably yet another one that happens post 500, um, which, which there's just so few who are doing it. Whereas it no longer makes sense to be a single design org. And then what are that, what does that model look like? Which is the best out there is probably the uh, IBM design um, where you have a relatively small core called IBM design that owns the function of design for the company, but not all the designers report up through it designers report up through lines of business at that point um but so 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 kind of diagramming that more uh and and making that clear would would probably be uh is definitely a, a shortcoming in the current book that i would want to work on in a subsequent 
uh, uh, follow-up. I mean, as you say, there's so few of them, you'd probably, you know, there'd be five extra book sales if you if you included that. So. <laughs> um, Perhaps. You'd be surprised how many big orgs, big design orgs there are. Um, yeah. I mean, maybe not a ton, but but more, more than you'd think, uh, honestly. I mean, teaching this workshop, I'm just always surprised. Like, yeah, it's never the most, but but they're they're out there. I mean, every big American company has now, whether or not they're organized in any way, over 100 designers. I've just been working with Kaiser Permanente. They've got 150 designers rattling around there. Like literally any company that's that's Fortune 1000 probably has 100 designers in it. They just, they're not, they're not working together. They're usually in these little units sprinkled around. Yeah, yeah. I, I suspect that this is a, a long answer, but Ryan Rumsey has asked, um, what's the difference between de- decentralized and centralized models as defined in your book? Um, and how would you structure a design organization with them, within them? I feel like uh, <laughs> re- you could read half the, half the book and, and find out. Um, but for the layman, when you talk about decentralized, centralized, centralized partnerships, uh, very briefly, what are you talking about when you say that? So, so I start by talking about centralized because that was kind of the the original way that companies embraced design was, and you, and you still see it in in many um, marketing and communication design orgs, um, which is um, as an internal agency, and so that's the classic centralized. All designers sit together um, in in some design team and then are farmed out on projects as needed throughout the organization and then come back. So that's centralized, right? Where it's this this service function that supports the organization. Um, Decentralized is when all these different functions now, all these different business units, lines of business, product teams, whatever you want to call it, depending on your organization, have their own designer. They've they've gotten headcount for a designer and those designers are, are scattered throughout the business. And true decentralized is when those designers were poured up through those lines of business, right? And I've seen that where, where you know, uh, it, companies that have taken this kind of um, Spotify squad model to to an extreme, where they have design a designer reports to the product manager whose team they support, right? Um, that would be this kind of true decentralized model. You don't really see that so much. There's usually some sense of a design team, but but in these, in this kind of Spotify model, a, a lot of companies practice, um, designers are still spending 90, 95% of their time with um, the, the cross-functional team and almost none with any other designers. Right, right. Right. And so those are these kinds of two extremes. And what we were articulating with the centralized partnership, and I think you mentioned, I think this question came from Ryan and he's at USAA. Um, one of the better interviews I've ever heard about scaling design was one that the Design Better podcast did with Mariah Garrett, who is the chief design officer at USAA. And um, so that's worth looking up for anyone who's interested in it. And they they seem to approach a hybrid model pretty well, where they've got a series of, I mean, they've got hundreds of designers at USAA, but those hundreds of designers are grouped in teams of five, six, or seven, working with some set of product and engineering peers to deliver on different parts of the experience, which was very much how we articulated that kind of hybrid model working in the book. 
Um, so so the, the, the nature of the hybrid model is organizationally reporting structures. All those designers report up through uh, a single head of design, um, but they're broken up into teams and the teaming allows designers to work together. So they're not truly decentralized in terms of that working individually, which often happens. So those designers are working together, but the part, word partnership is crucial. They are working together in partnership with some cross-functional entity um, in software. It's typically product management and engineering in a committed relationship where those designers are committed to working with some set of product teams um, uh, over long periods of time. So that's where they're different from a true centralized design org where designers are just getting farmed out kind of willy-nilly. Yeah, and kind of sitting as an internal agency altogether. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Uh, th- this is this is the last uh, last question. Joe Lamancia asks, how has the growth of design orgs paralleled the growth of other at one time new business functions like HR or marketing? Um, and are there any formerly new disciplines that design's growth has closely paralleled? Um, I, I can't say that I've studied that, so I don't know for sure. Um, but uh, what I have sensed is that what we're seeing with the growth of design is not unlike what happened with um, engineering 20, 30 years ago. Um uh, design and engineering are similar-ish in that they are primarily craft disciplines, right? They're not management disciplines, they're maker disciplines. Um, and the struggles that engineers had 20, 30 years ago that led, frankly, to things like XP and Agile and Scrum as a way to manage their work, I think we're now experiencing as designers, which has led to a lot of the conversations that we're part of um, in terms of how to better manage design efforts. Um, and we are, I, I'm frankly grateful that engineers uh, were, were pioneers in this regard. Um, you know, the, those, the, the folks who were, were thinking about this were clearly very thoughtful, very reflective, um, uh, set up structures that we can take advantage of. Frankly, dual track um, career progression didn't exist before engineering made it a reality, right? Uh, uh, because uh, engineers realized... <laughs> Many engineers realize, like, I don't want to manage people. In fact, I don't like people. I'm not good at <laughs> dealing with people. You don't want yeah. me to manage people, but you want to you want to acknowledge my growth and development. So, so please create a way that I can continue to grow without actually asking me to manage people, right? Engineers uh, uh, blaze that trail that designers are now able to follow because, frankly, designers there's a lot of similar personality types within design as within engineers. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so that's the one that that I think we are most um, akin to, from what I can tell. I can't speak to other functions, HR, marketing, and and other kind of. There's other ones that are happening now, almost in parallel with us. Um, data science, um, um, opsec, um, and other forms of kind of uh, digital security teams that are growing within organizations. I think are growing in similar ways and having some similar struggles in terms of how do they organize. Because they're smaller, and so they, they need to be higher, more highly leveraged, um, but they don't want to be strictly centralized because there's so many problems when, when, when engaging with a purely centralized function. Mm. And so um, a, a few of us are grappling with how do, we, how do we maintain our practice in a leveraged way um, uh, uh, 
as as companies are are embracing the value that we are delivering, but don't quite know what to make of it yet. Right, right. All very uh, emergent and nebulous and fun. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. It is fun. <laughs> um, okay, so that's that's us. I think we've talked for. I've taken up enough of your morning. Um, thank you so much for. Thanks so much for joining me, uh, Peter, and, and um, really excited to kind of follow you as you uh, go through. Will there be a second edition of the book? Do you think or? <laughs> We're not committed to anything like that. Um, uh, uh, I need, uh, in, in the near term, I need to just do some more writing. We, we have a blog for Org Design for Design Orgs that's gone a little fallow uh, over the past uh, five or six months. And um, I think it's time to, to start putting some more ideas out there. No plans for a second book, um, but definitely plans to continue to engage with these topics in various forums, whether it's through the blog, through Slacks, through conferences, etc. I'm excited to see whatever it is you're able to develop as a product that supports design management. Um, my, my model is always to go, is, is one of consulting, um, which, you know, high touch, but doesn't scale well. That's why I write. Writing is a way for me to kind of scale my thinking. Um, another way to scale thinking is through product development. So I'm kind of curious what, what emerges from your efforts. So I look forward to seeing that. Well, there's a more immediate return on investment with consulting. I can tell you that much. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, which my, 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 which my family and mortgage appreciates. Yeah, exactly. Um, where can we find you? Where, where should people uh, head? Uh, probably most easy to find me on Twitter, at PeterMe. Um, I still have the PeterMe. Yeah, PeterMe.com blog. I haven't been there almost in a year. Uh, OrgDesignForDesignOrgs.com, uh, which is the, the blog and, and website that we made around the book. Time to get that going again. And then... Um, uh, looking forward to doing a bit more speaking uh, in the coming year than I have in the past year or so. So, so look for me wherever conferences are <laughs> are held. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Thank you so much. Sure thing. Thank you, Johnny. Take care. <laughs>